Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front of Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. And this time last year, we were doing an anniversary episode on 1922, the year that some historians have have described as the year that modernity began. And this year, Dominic, marks another anniversary, but an altogether darker anniversary, the 90th anniversary of the coming to power in January 1933 of the Nazis, when Hitler became Chancellor. And so we thought that um, we can't really do justice to the rise of the Nazis in one episode. So we're going to, well, we'll see how many episodes it takes, but it's a story worth telling. I mean, it is a massive, massive story, isn't it? It is. It's it's an enormous story. So yes, you're absolutely right, Tom. It's 90 years ago, um, the 30th of January, uh, 1933, about half past 11 at the uh, Reich Chancellery at Wilhelmstrasse 77 in Berlin. So the Reich President's Palace was being renovated. So Paul von Hindenburg, the iconic general of the Great War in Germany, he was the president, and he welcomes the leader of the National Socialist Party, Adolf Hitler, to become Chancellor of Germany. Hitler swears an oath to uphold the constitution, to respect the role of the president. He says he will, these are extraordinary times, but he's, he's determined to bring back normal parliamentary rule as soon as possible. And then the deal is done. And Hindenburg says famously, and now gentlemen forwards with God. And that meeting, that moment has, is, has gone down as a very baleful landmark in human history. Obviously, the communists have come to power in Russia, but the coming to power of the Nazis in Germany seems to cast an even darker shadow. And one of the reasons for that, you might say, is implicit in the scene that you've just described, which is that the Nazis, unlike the Bolsheviks, they come to power by means of gaining mass support in free elections. Yeah. And that perhaps is why it, it, it so haunts people in democracies to this day that something could have happened like that because the other aspect of the story that is so unsettling is that this is happening in perhaps the most cultured, economically advanced, industrially advanced, sophisticated country in the whole of Europe, Germany. Yeah. So, so those quest- those two questions, how is it that the Nazis are able to use democracy to destroy itself? And how did a country like Germany come to fall under the spell of a man like Hitler 
both of them very, very frightening questions right the way into the present. They are, absolutely. So we've just done, haven't we, um, two podcasts about uh, Auschwitz with Jonathan yeah. Friedland about the story of the, the escape artist, the man who escaped from, from Auschwitz. Um, so we know where the story is heading, and I think you're absolutely right that there are those two elements – to the sort of mystery, as it were, a really crucial one that the Nazis didn't seize power. I mean, they didn't quite win power by electoral means because they never won an absolute majority in a, in a free and fair election, but they were the biggest party. Yeah. And they're engaging in the kind of horse trading that is standard. Um, absolutely standard. In, in kind of liberal Democrat behavior. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. They, they, they get into power by, as it were, constitutional means. Um, now, obviously, there are lots of grey areas, and there's lots of violence that accompanies that. But you're right; it's not a coup, it's not a revolution, as it is with the the Bolsheviks um, in in 1917. So there's that element to it. There's, as you said, using democracy against itself. And then I think you're absolutely right. It's the fact that Germany is an immensely well-educated, sophisticated, civilized in inverted commas place. And ever since, I think, I know you think this too, Tom, that we have lived in the shadow of the Third Reich. Because always, for any Western democracy, that fear never goes away. That, you know, you're only a few steps away from heading down the same dark road. And how can you, I mean, you've seen this so much, of course, in the last few years, people worried about how could it happen again? Could it happen in France? Could it happen in the United States? Could it happen in Britain? And what does it say about human nature and about modernity itself that such a regime was able or to possibly, take power? Or possibly about do the causes, do the roots lie deeper back? So obviously the moral catastrophe of Nazism, which has, as you said, culminate, I mean, you know, the, the, the dark heart of it are those two episodes that we, on Auschwitz, genocide, I mean, the, the mass, mass killing. Yeah. Where could this have come from? Yes. And people have been asking that, and they were asking it pretty early on. And there are all kinds of, I mean, we can just sort of touch on the different explanations that people have had. So there are some German historians who argued that it was unique to Germany that Germany had always been on a special path, the Sonderweg thesis, this is called. So the idea that Germany didn't modernize properly, that it didn't have a kind of bourgeois politics like Britain and France, that it was more reactionary, that it was more militaristic, that it was special, and that Nazism was uniquely German. I don't actually think many historians no, still believe that, no. Tom. There are people who believe that Nazi that Nazism was prefigured by the Kaiser's regime, by the First World War. So there's a very famous German historian called Fritz Fischer, um, he basically argued that Germany's war aims in 1914 were paving the way for the Third Reich, and there was a kind of continuity in, in German history. Again, I, I'm not entirely sure about that. There was a historian called Friedrich Meinecke. Uh, again, he said that he blamed sort of Bismarck, said you know, th there's a line that runs from Bismarck and the, the Second Reich, so the creation of a unified Germany in 1870-71, um, that that leads to Hitler. Obviously, if you're a Marxist, if you're a really card-carrying, old-fashioned Marxist, you would say it's all about um, a product of the sort of the dynamics of class struggle, and and that's one that's contemporary to Hitler, isn't it? So a, a yes, lot of communists think, say Brecht, and famously in his plays, it advances the thesis that Hitler is brought to power by big business. 
exactly that their tools are big business. Again, I don't think that's one that a lot of historians would really subscribe to now. So the great British historian of the Third Right, Richard Evans, who is very much a historian of the left, he's pretty scathing about that um, that thesis in the first volume of his great trilogy on the Third Reich. Uh, probably the most famous Briton ever to write about Hitler is A.J.P. Taylor. I mean, A.J.P. Taylor appalled people. This was when he was churning out incredibly um, <laughs> provocative columns for the Sunday Express in the sort of 50s and 60s. AJ well, Taylor. thank God that um, historians don't, don't write for provocative columns for tabloids today. Um, but tabloid is the wrong word, so I think mid-market newspaper <laughs> is, the, uh, is right. the correct term. Thank you for correcting uh, me. So A.J.P. Taylor said that Hitler was a, no, a normal German leader. That there was nothing unusual about Hitler. Nazism, said Taylor, represented the deepest wishes of the German people. Now, again, I think a lot of people now would say AJP Taylor was almost being deliberately offensive with that. And that, yes, there is something peculiarly German about Nazism, but Taylor was completely ignoring the fact that Germany had all these tradition, democratic and liberal traditions, as well as more reactionary ones. But Dominic, also on the theme of centuries of, you know, that this has been centuries and centuries in the making you would not expect me to let a possible mention of Christianity slip by. So th- would not, there would is not. also the thesis that um, the Holocaust is bred by centuries and centuries of Christian anti-Semitism. Yes. Um, yeah. And, you know, the kind of folkloric belief in Jews as the enemies of Christ, that this is the, the kind of fertilizing the hatred that will be watered by Yeah, and there must Hitler. be some element of truth in that, Tom, yeah. that somewhere when you're in- analyzing the ingredients – that, that lead to the, the death camps, the, the weight of history has to yeah. play a part, hasn't it? Although, although as we will see, the, the quality of modern antisemitism is racial rather than it? religious. But, but, but I agree. I think it is, you know, that is a fact. It must be. Also, I'm sure we'll know, if you were picking a country in 1900 where a Holocaust might happen, Germany probably wouldn't have been top of the list. Russia, France might have been. Even as anti-Semitism is probably more virulent in France in some ways with the Dreyfus case. Anyway, we're, we're sort of jumping ahead of ourselves. Um, so there's always that tension. Is Nazism uniquely German? Is it uniquely European? Is it about something to do with modernity? Or if you were stepping right back, does it speak to something very dark in human nature? Well, so, so isn't there also the question of, is it, is it bred of material circumstances? So a kind of economic collapse? The um, hyperinflation, the Great Depression, all that kind of stuff, defeat in war. Or is it bred of the swirl of ideological currents and trends that are eddying about? Or presume, you know, I, I guess the obvious answer would be that it's a bit of both, that it's yeah. economic crisis amplifies extremist opinions. I think, yes, I think you're right. I think, I think that's a fascinating tension, isn't it? Because I know generally in this podcast, I tend to be Mr. Material and you're much more interested in ideas than I am. Um, so we'll probably, well, we'll tease a lot of this out, I guess. So should we start by talking about, maybe we'll start by talking about Germany. Yes. Okay. So how far back would you trace the origins of Nazism? Would you trace it back to medieval anti-Semitism? Would you trace no, it back to Luther? Would you trace it back to Frederick the Great? Would you trace it back to Bismarck? Well, Richard Evans, who I mentioned already in his magnificent books on the Third Reich, he begins by saying something like, does it make sense to start with Bismarck? And, and he thinks it does. And I think, in a sense, you're right, because I, 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 there's only really one lifetime, not even one lifetime, that separates Bismarck founding the German Empire in 1871 and the coming to power 
um, of the Nazis at the beginning of the 1930s. So it kind of, you know, since somebody could plausibly see both, it makes sense to, to, to use that as our span. So Germany didn't exist before 1871. I mean, there's a concept of Germany and there are people who speak German and there's a sense of German culture and German literature and German history, but there's no state. Which would include Austria. We should put that out. Yes. So Austria will play a part yeah. in this because, of course, Hitler is Austrian. But Austria is shut out of the creation of, of Germany or the Germans in Austria because they're part of the, the Habsburg Empire. There are definitely elements in – so Bismarck is the, is the great um, guiding spirit of this new German empire that's created when they beat the French in 1871. Um, and there are definitely elements in, in, in Bismarck's creation, the Second Reich. We did a whole podcast about this with Katja Hoyer back in the early days of the rest is history that prefigure Nazism. So Bismarck believes in force to get his way. Well, famously, blood and, blood and iron is the famous phrase that he uses, isn't it? I don't think that makes him unusual in 19th century Europe at all. Um, he's very ruthless and, and, and subtle. But it and is specifically that, that he's talking about um, how the great questions of the day should not be decided by speeches and all that kind of stuff. That, yeah. that essentially, it should, you know, I, by iron and blood, he basically means the military, doesn't he? He doesn't, but he, I mean, it works. He get he fights at three wars against the Danes, against the Austrians, and then against the French. But that is a contrast, say, with Britain. I mean, it's yeah, a very obvious Because Britain is already, well, Britain is fighting wars abroad. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people would say, come on, you know, the British are fighting their wars right. in the Sudan but, or Egypt or whatever. But Bismarck but, is enshrining a, a political role for the army. Agreed. And, and the agreed. army, obviously, is a tool of force. So it yes. could be argued that the idea that force is a, and violence are acceptable expressions of political will are kind of soldered into the German constitution. They are. I mean, I, I don't know if, that's, I think if right. that's valid, but... I think a lot of people, argued. historians would agree with you about that, Tom. And they would say the, the army is enshrined within Bismarck's Second Reich. It's kind of like a state within a state. It's self-governing. It answers only to the Kaiser. It doesn't answer to civilian politicians. Because isn't there, isn't there this kind of the... the um, the joke is that politicians in the Second Reich are, are constantly threatened from a coup above. That there's, yeah, you know, if they go too far, they know that the generals and the Kaiser will dump on them, kick them out. Well, this is exactly what will happen, actually, Tom. This is the the, the shadow that hangs over the Weimar Republic later on, and in, in the years before the Nazis come to power, that the you have the, the the big man, so initially the Kaiser, and then President Hindenburg in the 1920s, with the army. And that they're actually often working against the democratically elected politicians. So there's that. There's the idea of um, a kind of Germandom, that all German speakers have a destiny to be united in a single empire, a Reich. So that's obviously there in the late 19th century. There is the experience of, of imperialism, the colonial experience with the Germans. If you were defending the Germans, you would say learning from other European countries' example where they behave with great ruthlessness and bloodthirstiness, for example, in Southwest Africa, where they massacre the Herero population. There's an anxiety about Bismarck's Second Reich. So there's a sense that they have been – they're latecomers, aren't they, to the European party. They're, they're, they're a new state welded together by, as you said, by iron and blood. And there's a sense that the British and the French in particular have had centuries head start and have got all these colonies and all these advantages and the Germans are catching up and feel a little bit resentful about it. That said, Bismarck is clearly not a Nazi. He is reactionary, undoubtedly, but then there are lots of reactions. I mean, Lord Salisbury is a reactionary. There are lots of reactionary politicians in Europe. But also, Dominic, isn't, I mean, militaristic politicians. We, we've emphasized the, 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 the militaristic character, character of the Second Reich 
but it is also very democratic and in lots of ways it is more democratic than britain yes it is absolutely a much larger franchise it has a much larger franchise exactly right a much larger trade union movement i suppose what you would say again if you're looking with the benefit of hindsight you would say they have this huge party the social democratic party kind of a left-wing party um it's the largest party in the world right yeah a million members the largest democratic party in the world and yet there's always this sense in Bismarck, in the, in the state that Bismarck has created, that they're not really legitimate, that there's always this suspicion of them, this idea that they, the conservative middle classes are terrified of them. They say that they are Marxists. Well, they are Marxists, mm. um, that they are a threat to the integrity of the Reich, that they are subversive, all this kind of thing. That said, people are saying similar things in Britain about you know, the Labour Party, about radicals. I mean, even but, they're even saying about the Liberals. Well, they are about the Labour Party. I mean, less so about the Liberals. I mean, the thing about parliamentary democracy in Britain is that you have the notion of, you know, Her Majesty's loyal opposition. You do. But which in, you seem you were- to le- have less so in Germany, where there is on the part of the, let's call them the, the bourgeoisie, the bourgeois parties, the parties of the right, the, the parties of, of the middle classes. They are terrified of the social democrats. They and, and they never really regard them as legitimate. And so that is a theme that will feed through into the post-war period, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Tom. And um, that's a fair point. Uh, they, Looking back now from post-1933, you can say they never trusted the Social Democrats. It's the biggest party, certainly the biggest party from 1912 in Germany. But among the judiciary, the police, big business, the establishment, there was always this sense, oh, they're not legitimate. We should crush them. That said... If the First World War had gone differently for Britain, then you would have looked back at Edwardian Britain and you would have found people saying the liberals are betraying our country because of home rule. The liberals, you know, that you would have, Gladstone was a traitor as, you know, they would have found people saying that. So I I wonder whether there's an element of, 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 of hindsight here. And I suppose also say Britain had been defeated in the First World War or France, you would also have found not only within the constitutional structure of each country, but also within the current of ideas swirling around. So that's also a part of the mix. Absolutely, it is. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So I think across Europe, not just in Germany, but across Europe, you have deep anxiety about modernity, all sorts of political and cultural and social tensions. So you see it in Britain, for example, in the Edwardian period about votes for women and all, uh, all these sort of things, um, about culture generally, distrust of sort of abstract culture and the new music and all that kind of thing. But in Germany, there, there are, I think we can identify, let's say the 1880s and 1890s. I think a lot of historians would say Nazism is in many ways a creation of the 1880s and 1890s. You can see the ingredients. The 1880s and 1890s across Europe are, are being re- intellectually are being reconfigured by one big idea, which is Darwinism. Yeah. And what Darwinism does is to upend the fundamentally Christian idea that the rich have a duty of care for the poor and so on, that there is a, there is a value in being, you know, in weakness, if you like. And it upends that, at least the way that, that Darwinism comes to be expressed, the idea of uh, survival of the fittest and so on. And that provides intellectual sanction for, you know, European countries across the board at their, their political, you know, their economic, their military, their cultural apex, basically to go around kicking sand in the face of anyone they want to. 
I think that's probably true. I think Darwinist, Darwinist ideas, I, I, I agree with you. I think they permeate into all kinds of different areas. The idea of competition, the idea of struggle, the idea yeah. of kind of inevitable confrontation. And as you said, actually, Tom, I think you're probably right. A disdain for weakness that perhaps wasn't so strong before. And therefore, a kind of an anxiety that different peoples are in a race and that if you drop behind, then you're going to be crushed. So I was kind of looking at this uh, in the context of all the various themes that will feed into Nazism. And it's very kind of international. So you have you have a German, Wilhelm Marr, who in 1873 is recalibrating Christian anti-Semitism in very overtly Darwinian terms. That, yeah. that it's not about religious prejudice. It's about the fact that there are differences within the blood. Yeah, and he, he absolutely so he, he's, that's, he's explicit yeah. about that. It's not religious. It's racial. It's racial. And he he coins the word anti-Semitism, and it's something he's tremendously proud of. And he. 1879, he founds the League of Anti-Semites. So that's the yeah. German angle. But then in France, also you have, as you said, this incredible strain of anti-Semitism. And it's in France that um, thinkers coin the idea of of the Aryans as a master race, the kind of people from the north as a, as as people who should properly be the rulers. I mean, it's kind of odd thing for the French, you know. It's it's um, what's his name, Gobineau. Yeah, and that gets translated into German in. Um, 1898. So that's obviously also part of it. But then there is also this British figure, Houston Stuart Chamberlain, who who writes this work, The Foundations of the 19th Century. And he further kind of refines this idea that history is forged by competition between races. And he posits that the two great races, the two racial groups that have kind of retained their original purity amid all the miscegenation that's been going on, are the Aryans and the Jews, and that the Aryans and the Jews are locked, therefore, in a contest for global supremacy. And you can see how, you know, this Anglo-French-German swirl of ideas is going to feed into Nazism. But it is there, you know, it's it's not specific to Germany. Right. Agreed. Houston Stuart Chamberlain, he was a, an old boy of um, Tottenham College, Tom. Is and he? he's drawn into this anti-Semitism because he's a passionate liberal would you believe? So he hates Benjamin Disraeli. He has an absolute loathing of Benjamin Disraeli, who, of course, has Jewish ancestry. Uh, interestingly, Chamberlain marries the daughter of Richard Wagner. Richard Wagner. Yes. Yeah. So Wagner is a hugely interesting figure. Um, of course, he's, for some people, he's tainted because of his associations with this. Other people will say, no, listen, the music is separate from the from the man. Sort of Wagner's shadow, his his use of pseudo sort of Nordic and Germanic nationalist mythology in his operas, um, his his intense anti-Semitism, all of that is not unique to him. It's part of that world that you've just been describing, where people are living in a world that's that on the one hand it's very forward looking, with its it's very scientific, with all this talk of racial difference, and but on the other hand it's backward looking steeped in history and myth and all that stuff right and, th and that will i mean that is the great tension within fascism and nazism the, the way that you look back to the heroic days of you know whether it's the germans or the romans or whatever and you look forward to cutting edge science and yeah the way in which um germany is is the scientific brand leader that it's it's physicians and doctors and epidemiologists have kind of identified all kinds of diseases, have tracked down kind of Basile, all that kind of stuff. The idea that 
healthy organisms can be infected by germs. I mean, this provides a very, very potent metaphor for racists and anti-Semites. Yeah, it's fascinating, actually. The late 19th century is this period of great interest in hygiene, in the idea of social hygiene. Everything is medicalized. People are using medical metaphors all the time. And as you said, um, it's very easy to slip from talking about social hygiene if you're talking in the 1890s or something to talking about racial hygiene. So clean yeah. cities, clean streets, yeah. but also a clean race where the best people are breeding and, and, and outsiders are kept out. Because Rudolf Hess, I mean, he, he defines Nazism as applied biology, kind of yeah. chilling phrase. This sort of cranky science, if you like. I mean, Confirming maybe it's not all your darker that. suspicions of science, Dominic. <laughs> it is. I've always, I've, yes, you're absolutely right, Tom. Regular listeners will know that I'm very suspicious of science generally. Yeah, so there are people talking about eugenics. There are people talking about capital punishment. Right. And, and eugenics, again, eugenics is absolutely, you know, it's not a right wing thing. It's across the political spectrum. The idea yeah. that healthy societies should breed out mental, right. physical defection, defects as they exactly. see them. I mean, there are tons of intellectuals in Britain. George Bernard Shaw, all that, all that kind George of thing. George Bernard yeah. Shaw, lots of people who would see themselves as maybe being on the left, who are saying, do you know what? We should have eugenics to breed out all these uh, impurities. We should um, just execute lots more criminals, get rid of them, get them out. All of this kind of thing. There are a couple of other ideas, though, Tom, just before we move on. So one of them is this idea of pan-Germanism. So this idea that the German people must all be united in one empire um, that they're opponents of the Jews. So the pan-Germans, there are all sorts of pan-German movements in the 1890s, 1900s. They're always looking for enemies within and without. They, they talk in these very sort of broad brush terms. They talk about Germandom, Judom, you know, Slavdom, and they think that these different dums are engaged in this apocalyptic war. A lot of pan-Germans are also interested, and here's another medical idea for you, in this idea that a race needs room, needs a, a, a big living space. Yeah. So this comes from an anthropologist called Ludwig Voltmann in 1900. He says the German race has evolved more than others, and we need more space, and we, that we'll have to acquire that space. It's, it's the law of nature that we will have to acquire that space from other races. So there's all that stuff. One other element I think we've got time for just quickly, which is very, very popular in Germany. And and again, you can see similarities with things going on in Britain. Um, is this idea of people, bands of brothers. Oh, these are the guys going off into mountains and hiking and singing. Right. And This is the yeah. backward looking. The Scouts. This is about, the Boy Scouts. It's the Boy Scouts in Britain. In Germany, there are all kinds of little groups of, of boys who will, or young men, They'll sometimes dress up in kind of uniform type things. They'll go off hiking, communing with nature. They sit around a fire. They sing nationalist songs. They talk about, they exchange these very ideas when they're out there sitting in the hills and forests of Germany, dreaming idealistically of this utopia that what this nationalist utopia that one day will, will come. But Dominic, to repeat, I mean, these are extremist ideas. By, by definition, they're not the mainstream. There's a lot of anti-Semitism on the, on the margins, but by and large, most Germans are not obsessing about Jews. Jews are incredibly well integrated in, in Germany. Yeah, about there's 1% only percent yeah, of the about, yeah, population. What, 600,000, something like that? Um, yeah, and they're very well integrated, very, well very integrated. assimilated, very successful, actually, professional. But that creates resentment, though, Tom, I would say. So particularly when there's downturns, like in the 1870s. Sure, but I think, I mean, th 
there's a case for saying, isn't there, because we know what's going to happen, historians have understandably gone back and looked for the traces of anti-Semitism in the pre-First World War world. But you can overemphasize it, I think. And so the, therefore, the question is, what role does the First World War play? Because all of these kind of extremist positions, I mean, they're swirling around, but, but had the Nazis not come to power, had the Holocaust not happened, we wouldn't be, in, you know, historians would not be really interested in them. They're right. They're curi- they'd be curiosities. So this is why I think the First World War is absolutely colossal. Our producer is pestering us to take a break, but just, just talk for a couple more minutes about the First World War. Germany's experience of the First World War is absolutely shattering. So if you're a German in 1914, you're very conscious of living in the most modern, the most industrialized, the most forward-thinking society in Europe. And suddenly you're in this war in which the Germans, by the way, they don't think they started it. They think they are encircled and embattled by Russia and France. They blame the Russians and the French above all for the war. They think they had to get involved to support their ally, Austria. And the war is really, really tough for the Germans on, on the home front in the way that it isn't, let's say, for the British. So they're blockaded. The British, the British starve them. The British are starving them. So they have famously the turnip winter in Germany, where there is just so little food, where they're drinking coffee made of dust and all this kind of thing. At that point, they, some people are looking for scapegoats and they're blaming the Jews. So there's that element of it becoming stronger. There's also the fact that the Germans, I mean, they literally incur far more casualties the British do, 7 million casualties. That's more than half of all the 13 million men who were mobilized. So by the end of the war, almost 2 million Germans have been killed. There are half a million widows. There are a million German children without fathers. So their world has kind of fallen apart. And also, um, the value of the mark has collapsed. Yeah, they're, they're, so, they're, so basically, their currency has been inflated to, to pay for the war. So incredible figure that taxation only covered 14% of German go- government expenditure through the war. I mean, incredibly. That's, so yeah, the rest that is you know, incredible. Is debt and inflation, exactly. So they're kind of pauperizing themselves. And that obviously will be very important in the post-war years. Democracy has not exactly been suspended, but it's been sort of pushed to the margins because by the end of the war, the country is being run by a duumvirate of two generals, General Hindenburg, Paul von Hindenburg, and General Erich Ludendorff, who we will definitely be talking about later on. So they, there's a sort of, this is to keep it together. This is to kind of, to keep fighting. And then, to the astonished, because, partly because of press censorship and so on, the German people are astonished when it all falls apart in November 1918. And almost without anybody really knowing what's going on, the Kaiser is suddenly out. I mean, he's out kind of overnight. And, and a, a republic has been proclaimed in Berlin by people many of whom did not even want a republic. So most famously, Friedrich Ebert, who's the leader of the Social Democrats, he proclaims a republic, even though he actually wanted to keep the monarchy. So the whole thing is falling apart in chaos. Berlin is racked in the, the winter of 1918-19 by fighting between different left-wing factions. Between There's rebellions. There's an uprising by a group of people called the Spartacists on the, on the left that is put down by returning soldiers in the war. So total and utter chaos. Everything has suddenly melt- collapsed in ruins. And ordinary Germans, particularly those who fought in the war, are completely horrified and taken unawares by this. And there's a very, very famous example, which I'll just read to you before we go into the break. So it's a guy who's a corporal. He's been a corporal. He's won the Iron Cross. 
Um, he's well regarded by his comrades for his bravery. He's not yet 30. And he had been blinded in a gas attack near Ypres in the final weeks of the war. And he's ended up in a hospital in a place called Passavalk in Pomerania. And in the hospital, he's been hearing rumors of what's all going wrong. And then on the 10th of November, so literally the day before the war ends, uh, a, a Protestant pastor comes to visit the hospital to give them, to give a speech to them. And he says, and he later told the story. He said, I was in a fever of excitement as I listened to the address. The reverend old gentleman seemed to be trembling when he informed us that the House of Hohenzollern should no longer wear the imperial crown. The fatherland had become a republic, that we should pray to the Almighty not to withhold his blessing, blah, 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 blah. And then the pastor breaks down and he starts crying. And the soldier says, the corporal says, a feeling of profound dismay fell on the people in that assembly. And I do not think there was a single eye that withheld its tears. As for myself, I broke down completely when the old gentleman tried to resume his story by informing us that we must now end this long war because the war was lost and we were at the mercy of the victor. It was impossible for me to stay and listen any longer. Darkness surrounded me as I staggered and stumbled back to my ward and I buried my aching head between the blankets and the pillow. I had not cried since the day I stood beside my mother's grave. And Dominic, the name of that corporal, what was it? It was, of course, Tom, Adolf Hitler. See you after the break. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who help shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. We are looking at uh, the rise to power of the Nazis and... Dominic, just before the break, you introduced Adolf Hitler having a, well, basically losing it over Germany having been yeah. defeated. Um, yeah. Breaking down and sobbing like a baby beside his mother's grave. So we did an episode, we did two episodes on Hitler, didn't we, on the life of Hitler with um, Sir Ian Kershaw. But just give us yes. a brief reminder for those who didn't listen to that and who may not know about Hitler's background. Where does he come from? So Hitler is Austrian, and I think, um, as Serian would undoubtedly say, the salient thing about Hitler is that bef up to this point, he is a he is a nobody. There is nothing remarkable about him at all. He's not particularly. He doesn't appear particularly evil. He's a bit of a failure. He's just a bit of a dropout. So he was born in a place um, in Austria called Braunau am Inn on Easter Saturday, eighteen eighty nine. He's the fourth child of his Alois and Clara. So Alois's father is just a sort of slightly rubbishy kind of um, bad-tempered Austrian customs official. He's a civil servant, a sort of minor civil servant. So no Jewish ancestry. No, no, nothing So Ian dealt with that myth, and he also he did. dealt with the myth that Hitler only had one ball. Tom, you love that. You love that detail, which is completely untrue. Those are the questions <laughs> that the listeners will be asking. And we just want to, you know, let, put that down. Yeah, so the idea that there's some sort of um, physical or extraordinary psychological flaw it's not right. It's a cop-out. What we know about Hitler when he was a little boy is that he's perfectly normal and a happy boy. I mean, Ian Kershaw in his biography describes him playing with his friends in the woods and all this stuff. In 1900, when he's about 11, um, he moves to a bigger school in the city of Linz. And there, I mean, again, this is really not that exceptional. 
Um, he's at a big school now, bigger place, doesn't really know anybody, is very miserable, kind of is lazy, becomes a bit of a dropout, becomes a sort of sullen, surly. Oh, leave me alone. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. He tells his father famously, you know, I want to go and be an artist. And his father yeah. shouts at him and says, never. Just hang out in his, his father, room. All that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. His father drops dead in 1903. Adolf... Um, who's his, you know, the apple of his mother's eye is able to persuade her that he to let him drop out of school. Then he just spends his time daydreaming and going to concerts. And But also, because that, that's the thing, isn't it? The stereotype of the teenager in his room listening to music. I mean, Hitler becomes obsessed by Wagner. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, really obsessed. Uh, completely obsessed by Wagner. And you can completely see why this sullen, rather miserable teenager is obsessed by a composer who celebrates the hero. Yeah. Who conquers, you know, stands atop the blooded bodies yeah. of his enemies. And there are so many, again and again in his operas, the figure of the hero is some, is someone who hasn't been recognized as a hero who kind of exactly. emerges from nowhere. So you can absolutely see that a, this makes Hitler, you know, you can, you can see the kind of person he is, but you also can, I think most listeners would say this is not a particularly unusual person. I mean, there's one in there, one, there are multiple versions of this person in schools, the length and breadth of England, and they will go on to become loss adjusters, estate agents, <laughs> yes. small business advisors, you know, yeah, perfectly so, normal people. So what happens to set Hitler on the path that makes him Hitler? I suppose, so th- one crucial thing is him going to Vienna. So his mother dies in 1907 when he's 18. He's tried to get into the Fine Arts Academy in Vienna. He doesn't get in twice. Very disappointed by that. It's a crushing blow to him because he's dreamed of being an artist. He ends up as a kind of dropout in a men's hostel, the men's home, and he's painting pictures for tourists, so postcards famously. He gets certain things from Vienna that he perhaps wouldn't have got somewhere else. So Vienna is, of course, in it's a, it's a it's a largely German-speaking city, but it is the capital of the Habsburg Empire, what we commonly call Austria. He's spending all his time listening to Wagner. Wagner is very popular in Vienna, but he's also reading stuff. There's a kind of strain of anti-Semitism that's particularly pronounced in Vienna. It's particularly virulent because Vienna is a is a city that is torn apart really by kind of political and racial conflict. Because the Habsburg Empire is multi-ethnic, right? Because in Germany there isn't much mainstream political anti-Semitism. It's on the edges, but in Aust- in Vienna that's different. Yeah, it is absolutely so. Kershaw says in his biography, you know, when Hitler goes down to the newspaper kiosk outside Men's Home or wherever, it's full of racist periodicals. So we know that he read something called Ostara, or we think he read something called Ostara by a guy called Jörg Lantz, which was all about kind of menacing, dark, swarthy figures attacking blonde women. And it's very, very anti-Semitic. But the key figure, I know you're very interested in, Tom, is this guy Georg Ritter von Schönerer. Yes. He wanted to get rid of the Christian calendar, didn't he? He hated Christianity. He wanted to give all the... Christian festivals, German names. So, you know, Christmas wanted to be Eulafest and all that kind of stuff. But he also yes. wanted to get rid of the Christian dating system um, and replace it with uh, the date of a defeat of the Romans by the Cimbri and the Teutons. So that's just before Marius, at the Battle of Nerea, and that this should be the equivalent of Grand Zero, the birth of Jesus, replace the birth of Jesus, Battle of Nerea, that's what it's all about, which is such a kind of eccentric, mad thing. It's expressive of the kind of the strain of lunatic thinking that characterizes anti-Semitism. Yeah. But Schoenerer is important. So Schoenerer is, he's a, he's a, he's a, a sort of quite a popular thinker, um, in, in Vienna at the time because he's proposing also things like universal manhood suffrage and kind of greater state activism and so on. So it's hard to pin down politically, but some of his ideas 
are definitely going to be very influential. Schoenerer, for example, wants to push the anti-Semitism further than anybody else. He wants to remove Jews completely from the life of... Yeah, so physically, politically. And he's also the guy who comes up with the Heil, right? Yeah. And his followers call him Führer, leader. So your Roman stuff that you were just mentioning, he starts shouting Heil when he's in Parliament in the early 1900s. And his followers, yeah, they call him the leader. So this sort of cod Roman, mm. you know, that, yeah. that the Nazis are going to pick up on all of that later on. There's also a, a, another key character in Vienna, very important influence upon Hitler and Nazism, is the mayor of Vienna. He's called Karl Luger. Again, very hard to, pop, to pin down politically because he carried, he's like a sort of, it's like a sort of anti-Semitic Viennese Joseph Chamberlain because um, the great mayor of Birmingham, Victorian Britain, because he carries out all these great municipal reforms. So he really modernizes Vienna and he does stuff for the working classes and the lower middle classes and so on. But he wins support by being fanatically and virulently anti-Semitic. And we know so that he's, Hitler he's, said to Yeah, Putin, he's a national socialist then. He's a nationalist yeah. socialist. Right. We know that Hitler said to people in his men's hostel, oh, Luger is a brilliant man, he's the best mayor of any German in history. So again, he's picking up all of this stuff. And he's probably picking up, he's almost certainly picking up the anti-Semitism. So there's some debate about exactly when Hitler becomes anti-Semitic, but he cannot not have been influenced by it. The thing is, his biographers don't think that it's pathological at that stage because he's just thinking about his rubbishy postcards and how miserable he is and Wagner and art and stuff. What clearly happens to him is he goes to the war because he's gone, he goes to Munich in the interim. There's the famous pa- photo, isn't there? Where he, in 1914, course, where he's, yeah, he's, <laughs> yeah. Um, he's delighted like a lot of people are. He really feels like, although he's born in Austria, he's from a German-speaking family, he's German-speaking himself, he feels like his destiny lies in a, in a, in Germandom, as he would no doubt have called it. So he goes off to the war, and I think what obviously happens, like to a lot of people in the war, and this isn't, again, not just in Germany, he's brutalized by it. He's surrounded by death. He's a dispatch runner. I mean, lots of other dispatch runners are killed. It's not, you know, it's better than some, um, posts in the army um but it's still not uh, it's not a barrel of laughs um so he's he's inured to death and to suffering i think this is the point that where yeah because before that nobody had said oh hitler loves violence he's an evil guy but i think at this point you know he's he's surrounded by violence um and then there's that sense of trauma and that stuff in passavalk in the hospital has mm. been invalided out i mean you read in, in, so that, that thing that I read was, of course, from Mein Kampf, My Struggle, which he writes in the mid 1920s. And there's long passages in that, you know, it had all been in vain, in vain the sacrifices, in vain the hunger and thirst. Was it for this that the soldiers died in August and September 1914? Had all this been done to enable a gang of despicable criminals to lay hands on the fatherland? Right. I mean, this is obsessive stuff. So who, would, who is he? referring to as the criminals is he referring to well they're called the november criminals aren't they the 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 democratic leaders who um agree to the armistice or is he referring to the jews already as the criminals both i think it's fair to say i think um he i mean don't forget he's writing those words later so he's looking back but at the time there had been a rise i mean if hitler is anti-semitic already because of what he's experienced in vienna it makes sense that he's still anti-Semitic in 1918. 
there had been a rise in anti-Semitism in the last couple of years of the war as people look for scapegoats because, because of the shortages, yeah, the rationing. And so there's a feeling that the Jews are profiteering. Yes, speculators. People are whispering yeah. about Jewish speculators, which is completely untrue and unfounded. Yeah. People are also saying, oh, the Jews aren't, Jewish Germans aren't doing their bit for the war effort. Again, completely unfounded. Many, many. As Germans, evidenced by the cemeteries. You know, by the cemeteries. Yeah. By the fact that one of the guys who had nominated Hitler, the guy who had nominated Hitler for the Iron Cross was a Jewish officer. But, you know, people lash out but, when they're angry and well, upset. And that's this is what's happening, I think, across Germany. But also, presumably, I mean, Hitler has an almost religious faith in Germandom, in the yeah. blood of the German people, in the blood of the Aryan people. And yet they have been defeated. So therefore, it's the nature of that. Therefore, the only way that he can explain that defeat is by treachery. Yeah, whether it's right, de- democratic politicians or more sinisterly, the, this idea of a basilisk within the German bloodstream. Yeah, and the nature of the defeat, Tom, explains that because you see, Germans losing in 1918, they've gone on this tremendous offensive, attempting to to win the war in one blow before the Americans can really turn the the balance of the war, and and they've actually carried all before them, or appeared to in the sort of spring and summer of 1918, and then they've the great Ludendorff offensive runs out of steam, they've been driven back, and then suddenly it collapses very very quickly, and there's this sort of sense that the German people have not been prepared for the defeat. Crucially, of course, there are no Allied troops at that point on German soil. Yeah. So it's all it's an away fixture that they've lost, as it were. Yeah. To their surprise, because they thought they were winning. And actually when the troops return to Berlin, Friedrich Ebert, who we'll talk about next time, who's a key figure in the creation of the Weimar Republic, social democratic leader, he famously says to them, No enemy has defeated you. And a lot of Germans believe that. They believe Somehow they've lost the war, but they weren't really militarily defeated, which is completely wrong. They were defeated on French and Belgian soil, but it's been, sort of been kept from them. And so they they say, well, we've been stabbed in the back. We've been you know betrayed by traitors and so on. Anyway, Hitler comes back to Munich, where he'd been before. He comes back on the 21st of November, 1918. And at, at that point, um, Munich is already in utter, utter chaos. So. When the Kaiser's regime fell apart in the final days of the war, across Germany, people had just sort of randomly seized power in different places. In Munich, power had been seized by a man who could have been designed to provoke Hitler. He's a guy called Kurt Eisner. He's a theatre critic. He's a very sort of bohemian sort of cafe habitué. He wears a black cloak and steel-rimmed glasses. He's not even from Munich. He's from Berlin. And he's also Jewish. And he's very left-wing. So he set, he basically sets up his own little Bavarian Republic in Munich. It's a complete shambles. Everybody on the right says, Oh my God, this Jewish theater critic has seized power. What the hell's going on? He's assassinated. An even crazier regime comes in, the Bavarian Council Republic under another, this time it's a poet yeah. playwright called Ernst Toller. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're utterly ludicrous. But, because that's the weird thing about this is, of course, Hitler is an artist. You have all these guys who are kind of various playwrights and critics and all that kind of stuff. It's it's basically people from the arts pages of newspapers all staging coups and <laughs> trying to set up dictatorships. You know my view, Tom. <laughs> Artistic people should never be allowed anywhere near politics. Um, yeah, so Ernst Toller's regime. So they declare war on Switzerland for not lending them 60 uh, railway locomotives. One of his ministers famously te- sends a telegram to Moscow asking for help because he says the previous minister has, has stolen the, the key to the ministerial toilet. So it's absolutely shambolic. 
That regime is then toppled by communists, a much more hardline communist regime, which is very much in touch with what's going on in Moscow. They do think this would appeal to you, Tom. They one of their first initiatives is to turn a church in Munich into a temple of reason. Yeah, very, yeah, very Robespierre. Very Robespierre behavior. Yes. So Munich is then retaken. And it's retaken by a group who a lot of people say anticipate the Nazis in all kinds of ways. They're called the Fry Corps, the Free Corps. And these are basically returning soldiers who they've come back from the war. Some of them it's still in disbelief that they've lost at all. And these are the same guys who are putting down the communists in Berlin as well. Exactly right. Killing Rosa Luxemburg and other left wing people called the Spartacists in yeah. Berlin. And they put down the Red Republic in, um, in Munich and, uh, they are very right wing. They are shooting people out of hand. Um, they kill about a thousand, commun- execute about a thousand communists when they finally fight their way into Munich. So Munich in all this period, this sort of six month period has been an absolute basket case. And so what is Hitler up to at this point? I mean, what's he doing throughout? Well, Hitler all this? is still in the army. He's still, he's a corporal because he was, he was in the Bavarian army. So the different states yeah. um, of the empire sent their own sort of contingents. So he's in the Bavarian army. And in the summer of 1918, 1919, rather, the officers do what, you know, you would do in such a situation. They want to make sure that their men all have the right ideas that, because they're worried that communist Bolshevik ideas have are spread among the soldiers. So they start to send people to, to sort of training camps and to, for instruction. They listen to lectures and speeches and so on. Hitler, we know, goes to these and he's very good. I mean, that's, there's no other way of putting it. He's very keen. He likes the ideas. He's- and, and he finds, he finds that he has a talent for public speaking, right? This is the moment where he discovers that he has this kind of exactly. uh, malign yeah. genius for rabble rousing, basically. Yeah. So he's basically been sitting in the lectures and answering questions and doing whatever they do, breaking for group discussions, no doubt. And the superiors say, he's really good. We'll get him to give some of the lectures. He starts doing it in August 1919. And again, they say he's very, very good at talking to the men because he talks to the men and because he's one of them. He talks in simple, earthy, direct language. He's, he's burning with bitterness about defeat. He hates the left, the communists and so on. He hates the Jews. So his anti-Semitism is very, very pronounced at this stage. There's a famous letter from this time where he's talking, he describes the racial tuberculosis. So again, it's that idea of disease. That and, medical language, yeah. exactly. So he's found a voice. This nobody has found something, the one thing he's very good at, which is basically ranting and raving to groups of soldiers who, who listen. Now, his superiors decide to, to build on that. So Munich, as I've said, is in total political chaos. There are, there are dozens and dozens of different political parties, far left, far right, cranky, extreme, all sorts. One of them is a party called the German Workers' Party. And this had been founded in January 1919 by a locksmith called Anton Drexler. And it's an outgrowth of something that will interest you, Tom. I would call it the Fool's Society, but you would, I, I imagine it's Thule. Is Thule. It something? Thule. Ultima Thule, which for the Romans was the icy land in the farthest north. So Iceland or whatever. Yeah. Um, so this is a kind of tiny, hard right, pan-German group, but it's also it's very anti-Semitic. So they're also really into the occult and stuff, aren't they? They um, are, presumably. yes, yes, and also they um, they're very into the idea of of Aryanism, and so they use the swastika, which is kind of ancient Indian symbol, as a symbol for for the Aryans. So 
that's kind of bubbling away. And they're led by this convicted forger, fraudster, who is passing himself off as a baron. Um, oh, right. The Thule, the Thule Society. Yeah. So it's, it's all... Um, and it's Thule because it, it's the furthest north. So it's this idea of a Nordic race, Northern all that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. So the German Workers' Party is a kind of slight spin-off of this by this guy Drexler. Um, it's it's selling all those ideas that were floating around in the 1880s, 1890s, kind of pan-Germanism, nationalism, anti-Semitism. It's aimed at kind of lower middle-class people. It is actually very, very small. It's nothing unusual in Munich. It's just one of many such parties. And Hitler is sent by his, um, his captain, a guy called Karl Meyer, who actually later completely hated Hitler and, and, and ended up being killed in the Second World War. Meyer says, go along and see what's going on with these guys. So Hitler goes in. This is a little meeting. Um, one of the speakers in the Q&A, somebody gets up and says, I think Bavaria should break away from the rest of Germany and become its own country. Hitler jumps to his feet and just starts shouting and says, this is a terrible idea, you know, ranting and raving. And afterwards... It's very like Twitter. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, I guess so. Drexler says to him, you, you know, you're very, I was impressed by you, young man, you know, why don't you, we'd love you to join. And Hitler joins, he becomes member uh, 555. Now, they definitely didn't have more than 500 members. Probably they had 55 members, but they would put the, you know, they would, they would sort of give the impression they were bigger yeah. than they were, pad it out. He goes to more meetings. It seems probable that the army encouraged him to keep going. They said, you know, oh, great. They like you at this. Keep going. Keep an eye on them. You know, maybe we can use them. You know, we can keep tabs on them. Brilliant. You you keep turning up. So Hitler goes and he gives speeches at them and he becomes their star speaker. I mean, they're not a highly talented outfit. So you might say that's not very difficult. Big fish in a small pond. Yeah. But there's no doubt he's very good at it. And 1919 becomes 1920. The meetings get bigger and bigger and bigger and mass meetings in kind of beer halls and things. You know, if you read the descriptions by Ian Kershaw and Richard Evans, they make it clear that, you know, it's easy for us to say, oh, these are, these are sort of weirdos and cranks and it's easy to win them over. But he's, he is very good at it. He gives these, as Evans says, he uses simple, straightforward language that ordinary people can understand, short sentences, powerful, emotive slogans. He will start quietly to get people's attention, and then he'll get louder and louder, and he'll work himself into a physical frenzy, kind of sweating and shouting. And the, it's the sort of the simplicity and the absolutism of the message. No hint of doubt, no hint of nuance. You know, he loves Germany. It's the Jews who are responsible for and, everything that has gone wrong. And the, the, the crisis facing Germany is so complex, is so terrible. It's such a snarl of complexities that I guess very stark, simple explanations for what is going on have an obvious appeal. Of course they do. Yeah. I mean, imagine that I've often thought about this, you know, to be German in the Edwardian, what we would call the Edwardian period was great. You know, your country had come from nowhere and was the dynamo of Europe. Amazing culture, universities, science, industry. And then you go into this war that you don't think, I mean, lots of historians may think it's Germany's fault, but the Germans themselves don't. You go into this war and life just falls apart. And suddenly you're in 1919, the Kaiser is gone. The ho Everything that you 
believed in has been turned upside down is in an absolute and utter chaos. And of course, you're looking for answers. And I think as Evans, Richard Evans talks about what he calls the revivalist fervor of um, Hitler's meetings. And in such traumatic times, you can absolutely see why people who feel themselves to be suffering and to be humiliated would grasp a message offering salvation and offering scapegoats, actually. Yeah. Because the Jewish, the anti-Jewish stuff is right there from the beginning. Interestingly, and I was quite surprised. Um, I, so thinking back to my my terrible GCSE history, I mean, the teacher, by the way, Mr. Gorsi was excellent, but I, but I clearly had completely misunderstood because I always thought that anti-Marxism was so key to Hitler. But both uh, Ian Kershaw and Richard Evans say no. He doesn't really talk about Marxism at this point or Bolshevism. What he's talking about all the time are the Jews. So the anti-Bolshevism comes later. But that makes sense, doesn't it? Because to to be anti-Marxist would be to be part of a conventional political debate of a kind that is familiar across Europe and has been for decades. Well, really, since the French Revolution, you might almost say. But to identify the Jews as the problem is to be talking in a kind of sub-Darwinian mode that perhaps people hadn't realized before that you know the blood is all and that therefore if the blood gets infected then disaster happens yeah. it's a new radical explanation that people in the mood to accept it are going to accept and, and actually um, another thing tom though is um it's the violence of it we did the podcast about auschwitz the question that hangs over all this is at what point is the final solution on the table. I mean, Hitler is saying in 19, April 1920, the Jews are to be exterminated. In August 1920, you shouldn't think that you can fight a disease without killing the cause. Without annihilating the bacillus, you won't be able to get rid of the racial tuberculosis. April 1921, the solution of the Jewish question can only be solved by brute force. So all of those ideas are there at this stage. I mean, what the thing is, though, so Hitler has cronies at this point. He, by 1921, he has control of the Nazi party. He's, various internal shenanigans, he's threatened to walk out. So when does it become the Nazi party? When's, it, when's that name change happened? So it goes from the German Workers' Party to the National Socialist German Workers' Party in February 1920. And Hitler also designs the flag. So the swastika, that comes from the... Um, the Thule, Thule Society. Yeah. Thule Society. Um, uh, the, the colors, black, white, uh, red, they are the imperial colors. They're the colors of the Kaiser's Reich. So you can see there's a reactionary element, yeah. but there's also the kind of slightly cranky occultist I mean, element. Very cranky. With the, with the swastika, exactly. Um, so Hitler's in charge really by the summer of 1921. He's threatened to walk out and he's been made the big man in the party. He has started to get um, a group of cronies, some very recognizable names. So Hans Frank, his lawyer, uh, you mentioned before, Rudolf Hess. So they're both in the Thule Society, aren't they? They're both in the Thule Society. Yeah. Uh, a guy called Julius Streicher, he comes in from Nuremberg. He becomes the, um, he's an absolutely obsessive anti-Semite. He edits Der Stürmer, the famous anti-Semitic newspaper. He's a key figure because he's going to reach out to Protestants as well as the sort of Catholic population of Bavaria. Hermann Goering. Yeah. He comes in. He's an air ace. Well, he's he'd, very, he'd flown with the Red Baron. He had it. He, well, he'd ended up becoming the commander of the Red Baron's Flying Circus yeah. at the very end of the war. 
Uh, he's amazingly, given his sort of corpulence later in life, he's seen as this great dashing romantic figure in the 1920s. So a bit of a coup for the Nazis to get him. And there's another anti-Semite called Alfred Rosenberg, who is fanatically anti-Christian. So one for you, Tom. He has Rosenberg has plans to replace all crosses in Germany with swastikas and to replace all copies of the Bible with Mein Kampf. Yeah. Well, he's he's ahead of Hitler there. Yeah, he is who, indeed. Who, who for much of the twenties is proclaiming the Nazis are, are very Christian. Yeah, but but he can see more clearly that, that that isn't the case. I mean, they're not friends I would personally choose to have. <laughs> no, but um, they're hanging around with Hitler in the early nineteen twenties. Um, so it's a small party, but it's growing. Now, here's the funny thing: as we as we look forward to the next episode, all the ingredients are there. So you've got all the themes, the Lebensraum, the pan-Germanism, the search for scapegoats, the hatred of the Treaty of Versailles that, 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 that has settled the end of the First World War, the hatred of the so-called November criminals, all of that stuff, the violence, the speeches, all of that is there. But the one thing that's not there is that at this point, Hitler does not see himself as a future leader of Germany. As Ian Kershaw puts it, Hitler sees himself as merely the drummer. Is the propagandist, he's the John the Baptist who is paving the way for the Messiah who one day will lead this German national movement to greatness. But that, of course, will change. And I guess we'll have to wait until next time, Tom, to discover how and why. And of course, if you remember the rest of this history club, you can listen to that right now, can't you? Don't need to wait. Pile straight in. Don't need to wait at all. The Weimar Republic awaits. But if you're not, you will have to wait until Thursday for Weimar. And uh, I guess we will see you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.